0: I'd like to ask you to grab a pew Bible and turn it to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. In just a moment, I'll read Hebrews chapter 13. But as soon as you get there, if you would, put your finger or... I guess you don't have to put your finger because you don't have to turn to something else because our our scripture reading um, will be projected on the screen. I wanted to share with you uh, that we had a very good church council meeting this past week. Uh, And one of the things we talked about was whether we would in some regular way uh, offer um, prayer for healing or special prayer for any purpose uh, to our congregation, say on a monthly basis. And we decided that we would do that and we'd start doing that next month, not this month, but in April on the third Sunday that is in concert with our communion Sunday Uh, And the way that we would do that is after the service, we just ask people to come and take their seats here in the front pew. And and then we would come and pray for them, we being the elders. And so uh, we'll look forward to beginning that in April on the third Sunday, along with communion. Um, And uh, I was very, very heartened by the responses we got from our service that was built around special prayer that uh, people have asked for and our elders prayed for folks, specifically prayers for healing. And so you can look forward to that uh, beginning in April. Um, Now, uh, since you're in Hebrews chapter 13, I'd now like to direct your attention to the screen where Dan has uh, projected there Psalm 110. And the reason we're projecting it rather than reading it from, from the Bibles is that this is from the New American Standard Version, 1995. Uh, which is a, a quite a literal translation, word for word, as far as is possible uh, from the actual text, in, in this case, in Hebrew. Um, and all translation loses something, uh, but the NASB is as close as we can get to a literal translation of what the, what the text in the original language, in this case, Hebrew, uh, actually says. So let's hear the word of the Lord now. From Psalm 110. The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will be free will offerings in the day of your power. In the splendor of holiness from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth is yours. The Lord Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He has shattered kings in the day of his wrath, he will judge among the nations, he has filled them with corpses. He has shattered the head over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside, therefore he will lift up his head. Now Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 through 16. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as Yuri comes to share your word with us, your written and spoken word, we pray that you, the word, would speak to us by your spirit. Give us open minds and humble hearts, Lord, to hear what you are saying to your people and then to respond in simple, humble obedience, joyful obedience, faithful obedience. And once again, we confess that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you are our risen Savior and our Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Mark.
1: I'm just going to get Dan to put up the text of our sermon. I will ask him to kind of go back and forth as we go. Have you heard, I wonder, of the Holy Fool? In Europe, holy fools were something like court jesters in that their role was to poke holes in the words and policies of the powerful. Unlike jesters, though, who spoke perversely for the fun and sport of it and generally enjoyed patronage and protection, holy fools claimed to be divinely directed to do and to say shocking things things that threw their audiences off balance. The bizarre words and actions of holy fools were deeply informed by the scriptures, so people often took for granted that they had a direct line of communication with God. Holy fools were also wanderers who felt it was their duty to speak the truth to anyone who would listen. And they generally begged for a living. And though they were sometimes revered by powerful people who also happened to be pious, they never had long-term patrons, so they were often hungry and cold, especially those who felt they were ordered to walk around with any clothes on. And since they often said and did things that annoyed and angered people, they were frequently harassed and abused but their role was important. They offered a kind of minority report that redirected attention away from the self-satisfied narratives of the comfortable, the shiny stories spun to justify the status quo toward the more fundamental truths which deep down people knew they were neglecting. And their strange behavior offered a kind of protection they could get away with deeply subversive messages because people could just write them off as crazy. But their words were still heard. Of course, holy fools in Europe modeled themselves on the ancient Hebrew prophets, who we know, because the Bible says so, were explicitly ordered by God to carry often unpleasant messages from him to his people through their words and their actions. Picture someone standing up in Kiev today and telling their fellow citizens to surrender to Putin or die, and you'll get an idea of what it would have been like to have been Jeremiah. That's exactly what we read in Jeremiah 38, a very similar story. Or imagine shuffling around the Polish countryside with your trousers around your ankles, loudly proclaiming that this kind of humiliation is what will happen to anyone who puts their trust in NATO. And you'll get an idea of how Isaiah spent three years of his life on God's orders. That's in Isaiah chapter 20. Well, David had something of the holy fool about him. He was hardly king material, as Samuel, the kingmaker, initially protested to God. And even after he had proven himself, he'd often provide the entertainment at the king's court. And to the very end of his life, he did and said strange and embarrassing things. And the Bible says that on at least one occasion, he acted crazy on purpose. Plus, of course, he was a prophet. In the very last week of his life, Jesus himself posed the riddle of David's words in the psalm we're considering today. The riddle, which is much clearer in Hebrew than it is in English, since in Hebrew, David, the king performing the function of holy fool, subversively and very publicly raises the question of his own authority by calling another human being my Lord. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each record Jesus' dangerous question for us in exactly the same context. It's his knockout punch in his sparring match with the religious leaders in the temple just before his arrest and crucifixion. They were looking to trip Jesus up, to trap him, to find a reason, any reason, to seize him legitimately. And in each of these Gospels, after each clever attempt has failed, Jesus turns the tables on them. And he uses this psalm as a springboard to warn his disciples about the coming apocalypse. Both the disciples, Destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans as well as the end of all things. The words set down in all three Gospel writers are nearly identical, but Mark made sure to mention that Jesus highlights the fact that not, not only was David the author of this psalm, he was speaking by the Holy Spirit. Let's just take a quick peek at these words. This is page 983 in your pew Bibles. 983 Mark chapter 12 starting at verse 35 Mark 12:35 And as I say this is the last week of Jesus life before his crucifixion just before he's arrested page 983 While Jesus was teaching In the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be? his son. The large crowd listened to him with delight. I encourage you to take um, time sometime this week to read the whole account before and after this point. Jesus' shocking point which he made with enough finesse that the authorities had no grounds on which they could arrest him on the spot, yet obvious enough that no one who was listening to him could be in any doubt as to what he was claiming, was that the Lord, who David saw in his vision a thousand years earlier, was none other than Jesus himself. And we can say with great confidence that Jesus' earliest disciples came to understand that this was one of the main points of the curriculum that Jesus had set for them. The Messiah, while a human king, a descendant of David, was none other than God himself. In other words, a God-man would be the only figure an earthly king like David would think to call his Lord. And Psalm 110 was the text that Jesus used to teach this. We know that Jesus' disciples took this lesson to heart because Psalm 110 is the Old Testament text that the New Testament quotes most often. Anytime you read that Jesus sat down at God's right hand, it's a reference to Psalm 110. The leader of the Twelve, the Apostle Peter himself, made Psalm 110 the climax of his evangelistic sermon on Pentecost, that's in Acts 2, and this was just a few weeks, remember, after this verbal duel in the temple that Jesus had with the religious authorities. A little while later, Stephen, at the moment he was condemned to death, also had this vision of Jesus at God's right hand, which would have been no surprise to him since he had been taught from psalm 110 that that was where jesus had gone when he ascended to heaven and as we heard in the call to worship at the beginning of our service paul also makes this same point very frequently but most gloriously of all one whole book of the bible is devoted to the exposition of this text. Hebrews is most likely a written-out sermon based on Psalm 110. It just boggles my mind to think of this. Hebrews, uniquely in Scripture, is a whole book that gives us the divinely inspired interpretation of what was already by that time a thousand-year-old divinely inspired text, but since it does so, I'm not going to presume to say much more about the first verse or the fourth verse of this psalm because the book of Hebrews thoroughly explains them. Instead, I'm going to start by asking a question. Given the fact that no other portion of the Old Testament had this much attention lavished on it by Jesus and his earliest followers, why do we in the modern church not cherish this psalm to the same degree? The neglect may partly be explained by the fact that it's just hard to understand. But the thing is, that's always been true likely even in David's time and definitely in Jesus' time, since he managed to stump his opponents with a relatively straightforward question about the identity of David's Lord. And this figure, Melchizedek, likewise, was no less mysterious in David's or Jesus' time as he is in ours. No, I think rather that we in the modern church avoid this psalm because, taken as a whole, we find the same kinds of things distasteful about Jesus and the whole New Testament's clear interpretation of it that the chief priests and scribes did, although for somewhat different reasons. In other words, like them, we try to find any reason to disassociate Jesus from this psalm, and in fact, most scholarly accounts, most commentaries, bend over backwards trying to see why this is not about Jesus, even Christian commentaries. To the extent that we're successful in dissociating Jesus from this psalm, we diffuse its potential to disrupt the stories we hold most dear. Now, the religious leaders of Jesus' day could not bring themselves to even contemplate the idea that Jesus, who was clearly a full-blooded human man, was also who he strongly hinted he was, namely, God in the flesh. That idea shouldn't bother any Christian, of course, at least not in theory. No, for us, the most obvious problem with this psalm is that we can't bear the idea of Jesus being associated with the violence and the killing we find near the end of it. Tactics that we associate with corrupt and selfish dictators, not with the holy God, who is self-sacrificial love incarnate. But there's a related, although less obvious reason But I think it's just as significant. And that's that while we theoretically accept the idea of Jesus as God, we are reluctant to fully embrace the full implications of what it means to have Him as Lord. Let's take a look at it. Psalm 110 is in two parts. Each part has its own emphasis, and each is introduced by a direct word from God. And as you'll see above me, the first word in verse 1 is a command. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the second word from God, this is now in verse 4, you can flip ahead to the next one, is an oath. The Lord has sworn... And will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now the command in verse 1 is really more of an invitation. An invitation to rule. To be king. The oath in verse 4, as an oath, carries more force. God has determined that this king will do more than rule. He will serve as an intermediary. A link between humanity and himself. In other words, he will be a priest. Back in verse 2, Dan, the seat of the king's rule is Zion. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. Now, to David, that would have meant something very tangible, a, a specific hill that he himself knew well because he had conquered it, he had made it his capital. The extent of the king's rule from Zion, though, is something that's more difficult to discern, especially since the language of verse 3 is not clear. That's where it starts, your people will be free will offerings in the day of your power, in the splendor of holiness from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth is yours. Although this has been rendered in a variety of ways. But at its most basic, the king's rule is associated with the rising of the sun. Now whether you take this as I do, that the king's cosmic splendor and power is pictured in the glorious womb of the dawn, or you prefer to think that this is rather the king's subjects who rise to greet him as inevitably and universally as the sun, who gather to him as naturally as the dew, there's really no question about the extent of his rule. The king's realm stretches from Zion throughout the whole universe. So that's the first part. The legitimacy of any priest, which is the second part, comes from his closeness to God. And that closeness, according to David, is beyond question. God has done more than merely command him to take on the priestly mantle. He has sworn an oath that it will be so. You are a priest. You can go into the next one. You are a priest. And note that that oath is not, in fact, you will become a priest, but you are a priest. In other words, he will not only do whatever needs to be done to ensure that his oath becomes reality... As God, he arranges reality itself. God's spoken word defines the natural order. Jesus is the link. Jesus is the connection. Jesus is the mediator. This is his timeless, eternal identity. He is a priest forever. In fact, he is the priest, always was, and always will be. Now, this is interesting. As king, as we have seen, he is at God's right hand. As priest, however, God is at his right hand. This is clear from verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand, although it's not as clear in English as it is in Hebrew. In verse 1, the word we had translated as Lord is Adoni, which in the Bible, always refers to a human master. But in verse 5, the word is Adonai. Adonai is at your right hand, which, as we know, usually refers to God. Now, to state this truth according to the divine economy to which Jesus in the whole New Testament points, that is the wondrous reality of the Trinity. The Son, as King, sits... At the Father's right hand. But the Father is at the right hand of the Son as priest. They are inextricably linked. And one of our most helpful commentators on the Psalms, Derek Kidner, summed this up this way. He said, the Lord Yahweh and his King act as one. There's no separation of the actions of the Father and the Son So with that fact established, now we can go on and tackle the part of this psalm which most of us find especially troubling. Now the first thing to notice here in verses 5 and 6, this is where it starts. He has, um, the Lord is at your right hand, he has shattered kings. The first thing to notice here about these actions that bother us the most, take a look, which ones would bother you the most? Probably the shattering of kings, in verse 5, the filling of the nations with corpses, obviously, along with once again the same verb, shattering. Now, these verbs are in the Hebrew perfect tense. This means that these are actions that are completed. Now, making things a little more complicated, in Hebrew prophecy, the perfect tense doesn't necessarily mean that the events they refer to are things that actually happened in history, even though they're best translated into English in what we call the past tense. But it means, when you use the perfect tense, that these things are so certain that if they haven't happened already, they are happening right now, or they will unquestionably happen in the future. Now couple this knowledge with the phrase, the day of his wrath, the day of his wrath. We Christians nowadays tend to limit this phrase to some terrifying end times event associated with the second coming of Christ. But while it's true that there will be a great and terrible day of God's wrath, there have been throughout history greater or lesser days of wrath as a consequence of our own sinfulness. Such disasters can range all the way from the meltdown of whole civilizations, which we all hope never to have to witness, to the personal tragedies which we all face day by day. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. And then later on in Romans, he puts it much more simply, the wages of sin is death. So perhaps we can begin to see now why this psalm served for Jesus and the gospel writers as a springboard to contemplate not only the end of all things, the great and terrible day of God's wrath, but also the end of Jerusalem as Jesus' disciples knew it. But it should also cause us as well to contemplate the difficulties we face in the context of our own mortality. But that should lead us, surprisingly, not to despair, but to hope, to humble adoration, and to genuine freedom. We know logically that no one other than God himself could hold the power of death and life in his hands. And we know psychologically that if we cannot or will not accept that we are not God, that we are by definition delusional. We know biologically that there is no compelling natural reason for our innate sense of moral outrage. So it must be derived from God himself. Thus, This instinct that we all have that we should be able to hold God to account is obviously utter nonsense. And yet there are, even here in this daunting psalm, hints of grace, of room, of time given for one who struggles with these things honestly. First, there's this blessed word. We we'll go back to the first slide. This blessed word, until, sit at my right hand, Yahweh says, until I make your enemies your footstool. The Messiah's first coming, first coming, could have been in a devastating barrage of lightning and thunder and judgment. But no, Jesus came and he died as one of us. As one David obviously recognized as human, one who, though he was eternally at the Father's side after his incarnation, had to receive an invitation to sit at his right hand. Until, until, that little word, until, contains a whole epoch. Second, there's this phrase Jesus is invited to rule in the midst of your enemies, in the midst of enemies. Again, in that little phrase, there's a whole world of tension and pain. It's the tension of the world that we live in, a world that does indeed feature corrupt and selfish dictators, baffling injustice, dispiriting hatred and unbelief. And yet the Lord rules in the midst of it all until the third hint is in the second part of the psalm and it's another little grammatical curiosity we find towards the end remember how the most distressing actions were in the hebrew perfect tense the other ones in hebrew aren't the action of judgment he will judge The judgment of the nations. Or at the end, the indication of complete mastery over creation. He will drink from the brook. The king scoops water from a rushing torrent by the way. He will do this imperfect action. And finally, at the end, his vindication, lifting His own head. Therefore, he will lift up his head. All these are not in the Hebrew perfect tense. They are in the imperfect tense. In other words, these are actions which, though they're not uncertain, they are still explicitly not complete. God has yet to make his final judgment. God has yet to sweep away all opposition to his rule. God incredibly even has yet to remove all doubts about his goodness and greatness. God leaves some corners in the universe in the hands of his enemies for now. This final action that David foresees, the lifting of the Lord's head as I said, is in the imperfect tense, the sense the tense of incomplete action. But it's worth digging down a little deeper in the text here because the wording of the Hebrew original is key to understanding what's being referred to. Verse 6 literally says that the Lord has shattered is shattering and will finally shatter the the head, singular. The Lord has shattered, is shattering, and will finally shattered the head, singular, of Eretz Rabbah, which the New American Standard has translated as the broad country, but it's more literally the wide or the great or the strong earth. The Lord has shattered the head of the wide world. This is language that should remind us of God's promise just after the fall in Genesis 3.15 that one would come who would crush the serpent's head. And here we find real hope that the God of this world, its head, though still active, has been shattered, is being shattered and will be shattered once and for all when the king's head returns from the Father's side to rule on the earth and is exalted high. Satan's power was shattered at the cross in the humble self-sacrifice of our great high priest and king Jesus, which he himself identified as the very hour that he was glorified. The book of Hebrews fleshes this out in far greater detail than we have time for, so I'm not going to dwell on it right now. But I would recommend taking a half hour and reading through the book of Hebrews alongside Psalm 110 sometime. Anyways, that shattering that the Bible tells us about, all that was a long time ago. So it's worth asking, how exactly is Satan being shattered in the present? I mentioned last week that we're in a moment in world history when we're feeling increasingly uncertain, increasingly overwhelmed by evil. And I really appreciated Dave's prayer earlier about this. It's worth asking is Satan actually being defeated? It certainly doesn't look like it, especially when we can literally flick on our computer screens and see the streets of other nations filled with corpses. Will there be no justice for the fallen? Does this psalm mock the deaths of the innocent, just as we fear it may? Is God still good? Is God still active? Has existence become futile? Is it all just a bad joke? Moments like ours confront us with the awful truth that evil is not just an idea. Evil is not an obscure cosmic force. Evil is not just the absence of the good. Evil has a face, or rather faces, mortal faces, human faces, our faces. And those faces, like it or not, are led, led by others who represent, who collect, who spread the false narratives concocted by Satan, the supremely evil supernatural personality. These leaders regurgitate the shiny sham stories that inspire the comfortable to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The terrible shattering of the heads of state that this psalm talks about is not something the powerful in the world like to have brought up. But it is real hope, the only hope, for those who are oppressed. And here's the real reason that for a long time we haven't much liked this psalm. We've gotten very used to being the ones in power. We may not like to admit it, but we are affronted by the fact that it is our leaders, our corpses, that David saw lying about, shattered and scattered. Politically speaking, we are, as many have recently observed, at the start of what will be a long struggle between competing empires with competing leaders and competing stories. And of course, there are many more stories than the merely political ones. There are empires of the imagination that reach every aspect of our souls. And not many of them, in fact, have a clear figurehead. Nevertheless, they all seduce us with their stories, reducing our hope mere wishes. We all live in the midst of them and interact with them. They are the air we breathe. They form the matrix of every world culture. The degree to which we embrace the stories of the great and powerful or the merely comfortable, their accounts of the world, the extent to which we embrace them, will determine the extent to which we serve them and share their eternal fate. On the other hand, the degree to which we are able to identify them as false is the degree to which we can break free from them. Psalm 110 tells us that there is only one story we really need to concern ourselves with. It is the story of the one who in the day of his power gave himself up. To redeem the world, allowing the ruler of this world, the serpent, to strike and in the process shatter his own head. And it's the story of the holy fools who offer themselves freely, willingly, to serve their Lord, despite the fact that it goes against every natural instinct. And here, is a one marvelous wonder in our text if you can go back to the first slide. The word in verse 3 free will offerings. The word in verse 3 that David uses for these people who give themselves up is the same as that for the free will offerings we read about in the books of Moses. The lavish gifts for the building of the tabernacle The sacrifice is offered spontaneously, yet purposefully, in awe and gratitude. Pure expressions of a deepening desire to draw near to God in adoration and service. Those of us who are drawn to him do indeed offer ourselves willingly. Whether that means just giving up control over the direction of we expect our lives to take, or literally taking our place amid the corpses David saw. Our lives belong to our Lord, to do with them as he sees fit. And as we heard the author of Hebrews put it in the portion that Pastor Mark read, we go willingly to him outside the camp. We bear the reproach, the disgrace, that he endured. As we do so, we see through the stories the world tells itself. We turn away from the ambitions of empires and their leaders. We abandon any false notions of a lasting city on earth. In doing so, we find a real hope and genuine freedom in Zion, the city that is to come. From Zion, the king's strong scepter stretches forth And wherever the king is, there Zion is as well. Seated at the right hand of the Father, King Jesus joyfully reigns in Zion in the splendor of his holiness. King Jesus cosmically extends Zion to the womb of the dawn. King Jesus eternally telescopes Zion refreshed evermore. In the trembling dew of his youth. As we offer ourselves freely to him in our weakness, we enjoy this never-ending day of his power. In our nakedness, we are clothed in the splendor of his holiness. We may fly feebly, yet on the wings of the dawn Well, that's all very nice, but as C.S. Lewis said, the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is Monday morning. The bodies continue to heap up, in other words. How exactly is Satan being shattered in the present? He is being shattered right here, right now, in the gathering of the subjects of King Jesus. It's often asked nowadays, why do we need to gather? But we may as well ask why the dew appears in the morning. We gather because it is in the nature of God's people to congregate, that is to collect where he is. And if you don't want to gather where the people of God is, perhaps you're not one of God's people where two or three are gathered, their King Jesus is in the midst of them. But there's more. And again, Hebrews puts it better than I ever could. Through Jesus then, it says, who sanctified his people through his own blood, let us continually Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. As we gather, then, and especially as we sing together, we are given the eyes to see through the sham stories of the world. And we're given to know what it is we are to do next. Sponsor refugees. Help the poor, clothe the naked, or as Hebrews puts it, to do good, to share what we have. For such sacrifices, such free will offerings are pleasing to God. Let's pray. Thank you, my king and my priest, that you sit at the right hand, that you rule in the midst of enemies. Thank you for those small phrases, in the midst, so full of pain and tension, for that small word, until, so full of grace. Thank you that you will lift your own head, proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are good and glorious and righteous and that you do all things well. Teach us what it means, Lord, to have you as our Lord. Teach us not to see ourselves as the masters of our lives, but like David, to have the humility of the holy fool and see you, the God-man, who is our Lord and King. And it's in your strong and powerful name made perfect through weakness that we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory of